The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My uh, special guest today is Arthur Nobel, um, an entrepreneur turned investor. Uh, Arthur works as a, a principal at Knight Capital. He started his career at Rocket Internet, joined um, a few VC funds, and then co-founded a startup called Flexpat, where he went through both the hype and the trough of disillusionment of uh, running a startup. Arthur specializes in scaling and growth positions himself as an expertise in go-to-market and scaling strategies. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Leaders of Growth, and uh, hosts a podcast with the same name, the Leaders of Growth podcast. So Arthur, fellow podcast host, entrepreneur, VC, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks for your kind words. I'd love to hear a little more about your your journey. It's a fascinating journey. How did you become a VC, an author, and a podcast host? And also, how do you find time to do all these different things? <laughs> it's a very inter- interesting question. Actually, interesting. When I was in my university, I was like very planned and structured, and I know where I wanted to go. And in the end, uh, I sort of made the joke my friends back then that I wouldn't end up in something with tech and not in finance. And eventually I'm here. So it's um, it's, an, it's an unforeseen journey. I think what really led me in, into this world was the, um, sort of the hunger to constantly try to do something something new and to learn. And in all honesty, to, that everything is fast. And I think that is something that's really characterized by the by, by, by the world that we live in. And I think that, that that's what appealed to me on, on, on a personal level. But I think I joined this world for, for, for mainly two reasons. I think first, I have this sort of ever desire to learn this one question, how does a company grow? And like, like to know all aspects from it. So that's how, why I, for instance, started also partially like writing a book, uh, doing a podcast, just, just to get the answers to that. And I think join the VC world just to uh, to experience that firsthand. And the second reason why I ended up where I'm today is I believe that this that it's actually funny. When I was 15, I wanted to become like a prime minister. <laughs> that didn't work out. <laughs> I think and afterwards I thought, okay, I don't believe that the future of the world is basically protected that bad, that well by politicians. So I believe that companies would be the ones who, who will help us to get there. But then I learned that basically change in fortune 500 companies is very, it's very hard and that it's basically that started for the best chance to change the world and as a vc i think i i enabled this change in the world so that basically led me to where i'm today interesting so it's actually some kind of philosophy or desire to do good some kind of altruistic feeling that got you into the world of vc and 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 to the world of startups Yes, yeah, so definitely one of the of the main drives for me uh, every day. Okay, so as a as a VC, are you able to stick to those principles? So when you're evaluating companies, do you look for more than just growth potential? Do you look for something that is going to make a contribution to the world, to the society? So there are of course like numerous ways to to, to think about it. I think like in a VC, 
my mandate and the, the way I am evaluated is, of course, the IRR or um, the cash on cash multiple that I provide to, to the investors. So that's something eh, if, if I want to keep doing this in the long term and keep making impact and keep creating jobs. That's definitely something I have to stick to and, and, and pick solutions that enable me to do that in, in the very in the very long term. On the other hand, what I try to do as 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 a, as a VC is to really look at, um, at, 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 the, at the human element of of like of like a founder. I'm I'm not in there. Yes, it's my mandate to make money for my investors, but I'm not personally in there to make money. I, I'm I'm much more in there to help others succeed and realize their vision. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur myself. I know I always make the joke, their job is 10 times harder than mine as a VC. So I'm basically more of a servant to help them succeed in their in, in, in their vision. Okay. So I've heard the, the idea of servant manager. You are a servant investor to use that, that concept. You touched upon your experience of being an entrepreneur. I know you had a roller coaster ride at Flexpat. What lessons did you learn from that experience? So there are a couple, maybe just to set a scene a little bit. Flexpet was a company prior to the pandemic that wanted to enable remote work to the masses. But what we tried to do is that we saw there was a big shortage of talent on the, on the tech side, developers, on the marketeers, designers. And on the other hand, we saw lots of employees or people that wanted to actually work remotely. So we went to companies and offered them to say like, you can get great talents if you allow people to work remotely. And by the way, we facilitate these work environments so that you know absolutely sure that uh, that these people are going to deliver. And these are not people who are just going on holiday. No, they're actually going to deliver because remote work, believe it or not, you can actually perform even better than in an office. So that was the, so that was the vision. People on the consumer side really bought into it. So on the worker side, the companies didn't buy into it because you got all the silly reasons why remote work would never work which were yeah, <laughs> very strong pre-pandemic. So I wasn't selling anything there. You really dive into the learning. So one thing what I learned is that market timing is crucial. I was ahead of the market. And maybe if I had sticked around longer, I would have been positioned well in 2020, but that didn't work out. And the second thing I was, I think, selling a change process rather than a product. And that is something that I would say ne ne never really scales. And the third thing is that I think the people you pick are very important. And I think some people like to work in a startup, but do, but in what stage of startup do they like to work? I like uh, it working in a pre-product market fit uh, stage startup is, is really different than one that, that, that has found it. So the type of people that you hire, I think the profile I think is very important as well as that I just prematurely scaled, which was something that I shouldn't have done, which was really, I would say, a rookie mistake. <laughs> okay. And I'll, I'd like to come back to your point a little later in this conversation about the different types of people you need at different stages of the startup scale-up journey. Um, so we'll touch upon that later. When we last spoke, you mentioned that the concepts of product market fit and competitive advantage are really poorly understood. So I'd love to hear a little more about your concerns about these two key concepts. If I, I think a, a quite different topic. So if I focus on product market fit first, is that I think I read the book of Eric Ries, the Lean Startup, I think, as everyone does in, in, in the audience. And it's an absolute great book. So not nothing against it. However, what I think is that the startup world came to believe that there is one product market fit. And from there, you happily scale ever after. However, 
I used to believe that as well for, for a very long time. And when I became like a venture investor back in the days, I just sort of saw that product market fit is really about you have a solution which solves a pain from a certain customer segment and they basically stick around and are willing to pay for the product. That is great. But from there, you basically start scaling the product. And if you really want to get basically to an IPO level company, you I, I always like to say you need to have thousand market product market fits. But every time you internationalize, start serving a new customer group, launch a new distribution channel, or broaden your product with different use cases, all of these are sort of little product market fits that you have to find. Therefore, it's not about just one magic product market fit moment. No, it's really about getting to a thousand product market fits if you really want to fulfill your potential. And that's why I also believe that building a unicorn is so extremely hard and not that simple as just a one-time event and from there you approach scaling. Interesting. Do you find that when you're grilling the founders who are trying to demonstrate to you that they have product market fit, do you find that they relate to this idea that, that you've just articulated that are actually various product market fits, not a single one? Exactly. Interesting. I did a LinkedIn post about this, I think two, three months ago, and I got lots of responses from founders who totally bought, bought into this. So yeah, I think, I think founders understand this well, but not to blame content creators, but I think in lots of blogs, it's portrayed, portrayed different. And that's why I'm slightly against it, just uh, so that everyone you know who starts know, like, okay, it's not just a one-time event. It's something you have to continuously think about it. Well, we'll certainly uh, bang the drum on the multiple types of product market fit for each company or each product. How about your concerns about competitive advantage and that that's also poorly understood? When I ask often about founders, like, so, so what makes you, what, what makes you different? It's like, uh, yeah, we have this problem, then we have that solution. And um, yeah, maybe on like these few features were different. And if you then say like, okay, but can you quantify your value proposition and explain to me how you deliver like a different value than your competitors and how now is this superior to others? Usually it's a big percentage of the group I speak to um, basically could get, get silent or cannot really express him or herself well. And what I think, if you think about competitive advantage, it starts with understanding like what's the, how can you quantify your value proposition? How is that different from everything else that, that's there in the market? How is that, of course, that, that value in itself defensible, but also how do you like everything you do with your new product initiatives, with your all the internal capabilities that you deliver with like hiring people or building up systems. How do you make sure that you constantly optimize for this single value so that along the line, you know, you, you make that impact. And if you understand your, your value well, for instance, like your customer success can orient it itself towards that. Your developer team can provide more value in optimizing for this value. Your sales team knows how, how to pitch well. And I think that's where, really where, where it starts. I think one of the best examples, for instance, is, is IKEA. That is, of course, an, a non-tech example, but everyone knows IKEA. It's brilliant what they do. And the reason why they can't be copied so well is because all their capabilities of, for instance, logistics, how they manufacture stuff and how they sort of sell it, everything integrates with each other. So all the capabilities are, are connected and that's how they 
drive the superior value. That understanding is, is I think, something that, um, that still can increase in the startup world. And it's maybe partially due to many founders starting in a new market. But oftentimes, you will always face competition. So this is a good mental framework to think about, also to prevent yourself from potential late entrance. I'd like to talk about your views on talent and hiring. I know that you love the idea of hiring trailblazers for startups. How can startups be sure they've truly hired a trailblazer? How do they how do they know before he or she starts that they have that kind of personality, that kind of character on board? I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer, but let me give some context to the to, to how to how I think about it. In a company, you're either focused on, I would say, exploitation, so basically running a playbook, or you're focused on exploration, basically building building a playbook. And oftentimes when you, for instance, enter a new market, start serving a new customer group, or launch a new distribution channel, you start doing something new. So you have to build a new playbook for that. So that's called exploration. And for that, most of the time, you need trailblazers. And these trailblazers are people who are sort of entrepreneurial people that can build up things from scratch, basically build a playbook, which is then returned to, I would say, like the maybe like the main team who start, then starts running this playbook. And the trailblazer, I think, is often characterized by having, of course, done this before, like needs to have a bit of conceptual thinking skills. How do I set something up from scratch? But it has to be also a very entrepreneurial person. I think a bit of a hacky mindset. And of course, the openness like an experimentation mindset and doing things over and over. And who is just not, particularly in, for instance, in the sales environment, is not necessarily getting excited about getting huge commissions, which can only be done, you know, if you run the playbook, but who is basically excited about setting something up from scratch. And I think what you see as a common profile is that, for instance, failed founders are quite an interesting background to look at, or people who... Let's say you're a Series B type of startup and you hire someone who was like at a very small 20 FTE startup who basically only got to Series A, maybe afterwards didn't work out, who has done sales in that sort of environment or who was basically the first one to do sales or marketing or whatever in, in an environment in a certain situation. I think those are people that usually possess the, the skills to, um, yeah, to be an effective trailblazer. Okay. It's an interesting uh, idea. Post your ad on LinkedIn for failed entrepreneurs to join the team. And this may lead into the next point, maybe some overlap here. So you've developed a framework to help startups tackle the challenges of scaling their business as they progress on their journey from Series A to Series C. So I'd love to hear more about this scaling framework. And I'm wondering if Trailblazers are actually part of you know, the earlier stages of the scaling framework. So walk me through that framework. What I tried to do, of course, I wrote this leaders of growth book and it was on scaling how to, uh, how to scale cross series uh, A to C. And then I was thinking, how can I condense all the learnings in sort of one framework? And because there were so many, there were so many insights. And then I sort of came up with, I think, sort of a roadmap for scaling. I think that was... Um, because we have like a product roadmap, we have maybe a hiring roadmap, but we don't have a scaling roadmap. And the foundational blocks, I think for me, were that you 
if you look to all all scaling challenges, I would break would break them down in sort of five in five in five elements. So you have like a people challenge, documentation challenge, a, a tooling channel challenge, a process challenge, and uh, process challenge and a and a data challenge. So those are sort of the five the five elements that I see that all the challenges that people mentioned to me basically could 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 be categorized in. So that was one way to to to, to think about. Uh, so if you're basically building a roadmap, you have to look ahead, of course, and then you take into account these challenges. The other aspect to think about is that is maturity stages of scaling. So people often talk about scaling, but what is scaling really? You know, the scaling scaling from, for instance, Miro, who raises now several hundreds of millions, is very different for companies that now just enter the Series A stage. So what I try to do is say like, okay, so what are different stages on this scaling spectrum? And then I came up with like, there was like this ad hoc stage where you just start, then you have like basic processes. Um, you know, you write something up in Word or Notion and sort of like the basics are there. Then you get into like a replicability stage, which I think often mirrors the series A stage. Then you get into predictability, which I think mirrors series B, series C stages. And then you do things at scale. So you do the same, but then on the much larger scale. And I think if you basically take these as the X and the Y axis, basically you can start filling out like, okay, so where am I today? Like, am I in the basic processes stage or am I at the predictability stage? And then you sort of write out what are all these challenges that I am facing now, but more importantly, what challenges am I expected to face in the next six to 12 months? Then you have a more structured approach to where you have to be in six to 12 months. And if you know that, of course, you can, for instance, hire a head of scaling who primarily is not like a CEO looking to the current the current situation, but who is like looking ahead to the six to 12 months and basically makes your organization ready for what is to come. An actual job title, head of scaling. Help, help, helps a lot to prepare companies for scaling. Yeah, I have certainly never been asked to go out and recruit a head of scaling. So, I mean intrigued by that i mean if you, you got companies in the portfolio that you've convinced need to recruit someone with that specific role and set of responsibilities i'm still trying but i i won't, I won't give up <laughs> okay i'm intrigued also by your interest in over hiring especially in sales this idea you should hire two sales people at the same time but retain only the better performer in the long run. So do you encourage your portfolio companies to do this? How do they feel about that? Yeah, very interesting. I think the, the concept of overhiring is quite often understood as you explain that you let's say you need to reach a sales target. You don't know who is going to hit it. So you just hire two persons, you let them compete with each other. And then after whatever experience, you hire the, the best person. I'm not really opting for that. I'm more opting to hire two people to as a downside protection risk. And if they both perform, of course, you, you both keep them. So what I what I often see, let's say companies between Series A, Series B, the sales teams are still pretty shaky. Let's say up to five salespeople in a more enterprise, mid-market type of environment. That's a side of the sales team. When they have, have to basically hire a salesperson, that let's say that takes three months. Then they have to onboard this person, if it's an account executive, takes six months. So after sort of maybe six, six to nine months, you figure out, oh, this person is maybe not working. And then if you have to say like, okay, that means I'm not going to hit my sales target because uh, there is a very direct correlation, of course, between revenue and, um, and, and performance of a sales rep. 
So you have to find like a new salesperson that will take again, six to nine months. So that means like you lose out in growth for six to nine months. And that I think, I think can make the difference between you hitting or not hitting your, your, your sales goals, which means you cannot attract this uh, Champions League type of investors, which means like your, your growth curve and your future of your company is, is, is at risk. So therefore, to protect that, especially in, in the in the early stages, I would always try to hire two people. And if one then really doesn't perform um, because of whatever a misfit, I mean, I made many bad hires in, in my career, so uh, <laughs> no judgment here. But if that happens, you don't want to put a company at risk. You just want to have hired, I think, like like another person. So basically, to to diminish this risk. Of course, eh, like a, a basic criteria is, of course, your, your your hiring processes have to be great. But I think this is just a simple risk mitigation strategy that you can do. And if they perform both, I think you uh, you can even accelerate sales. Makes sense. Okay. So it's an insurance policy, potentially actually with a lot of upside, but protects you on the downside. It's an interesting angle. Tell me about your most recent investment, the portfolio company that you've invested in maybe is even under the radar and hasn't been publicly announced but uh, a company that you're really excited about tell me um why you invested in them what their prospects are obviously like all the companies you invest in but it's it, i'm very happy you asked like what's the like the last one because then they don't have to judge <laughs> <laughs> so uh now the last the last investment i made well, was an infra speak it's a company that helps optimize as like facility managers and, and technicians to, to do their job better. So, so what you often see is that in, in, in this world, it's like a lot is done still on, on, on pen and paper, or it's used in tools that um, basically are just, I would say, tools with Excel databases, but who don't, uh, who are not in any way smart. What I'm sort of impressed by for what Philippe and Louis of InfoSpeak did was they really have this vision of where facility management have to, have to be in, in, in the long term. And if you, for instance, now have a building and you have multiple stakeholders, you know, you have the electrician, you have the technician and like a few, a few more uh, and a painter, you know, like all of them basically are working in the same property, but no tool has, has to date facilitated the connection that these people all work in the same tool to basically make this building better. And this, very enticing vision. I think they're the only ones positioned to to really realize that. That's something they are uh, that they are working on. That's I think that's the reason why I back them in, on on the vision uh, perspective. But also just from the current results perspective, it's so hard to break into this I would say blue collar type of markets and then still maintaining the growth in the post COVID era. I think that's uh, I've I've a lot of respect for that and I'm uh, very happy to. Uh, yeah, to back them. And a slightly different perspective. Tell me about the most embarrassing or the funniest investor pitch you've ever had to deal with where uh, someone's cornered you an event, or maybe it was even in a more formal situation and you've sat there and cringed or collapsed into laughter because it was just absurd. Maybe I have just very, very strong targeting with the VC because I don't get too many <laughs> absurd things. But what a, like the something I still can still remember, like back in the days, one of the former VCs I was working on, I think it was like an e-commerce company for, for gardeners, like a marketplace. 
And I think I got like a like a one pager, like a really bad word file. And that in itself was, yeah, I was really wondering like, how can you ever think that you raise money with with this? So that's one example. And another thing which I find always super fascinating is that you have many founders who have an idea and say like, okay, now I have to build something. So rather than approaching it in a hacky way themselves, they approach me directly and say like, hey, can we, uh, can we raise money? I mean, separate from the point that I'm a Series A investor, <laughs> maybe <laughs> you're just getting scrappy and build stuff yourself on the ground up, show me your MVP. And from there you start maybe asking money. So that's, um, that's always something I find uh, highly interesting in our industry. <laughs> Indeed. Now I know the life of a VC can be stressful, maybe not quite as stressful to your point earlier on as, as, as the life of an entrepreneur, but it can still get pretty stressful at times. How do you find some downtime? How do you switch off? Can you ever switch off from everything that's going on in the world and in your portfolio, especially over the last couple of years when we've all been mentally challenged, emotionally challenged by the pandemic? I'm definitely a bad person to ask and I'm happy that my wife <laughs> doesn't have to answer this question. <laughs> no, no jokes aside. What I really figured out in the um, in, in the pandemic that it was indeed like like working a lot, which I don't mind too much about it, but I I felt that I think I read this research one from the economist that after you work a certain hours, basically your productivity starts declining and maybe you don't notice it, but especially on a, on a long period of time, you, you figured it out. And that's actually something I had as an entrepreneur at Flexpad that, that I made so many, sorry for being blunt, dumb decisions just because I overworked. So what I try to learn from that and implement right now is that I am going meticulously by my agenda. So my whole day is, is, plan, is planned out and I have like a clear start, start time, but also a clear end time because I do the work that I have to do, which is maybe from, let's say, nine to six, nine to seven. But then there is also things which is important, but not urgent, which I spend also a few hours on, on, on the day, like after that. But I just put an end time there because I believe in the long term that this will improve or basically maintain my, my, my productivity level. So that's what I do, trying to go off and on holiday and then totally switch off. You can only reach me on WhatsApp, but I'm not checking my email whatsoever. And, and that are some of the things I, uh, I I try to do as well, just to manage my friends and family around me. But for instance, uh, on a personal level, we I have like a date night with my with my wife. I, I, I met her when I was finding, finding my company and I didn't have time. So we always said like, you know, well, at least one evening in a week, we have like date night and we're fu fully focused on doing something uh, something nice. The other evenings, I'm basically I can be I can be anywhere basically in, in my head, but just maintaining that and sort of like keeping that balance that you're aligned with that, like in, in a relationship, I think has helped me a lot over time. I shall have to try the idea of a date night with my wife. Um, I thought that was just the name of a movie. I didn't realize it was a real thing. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you for the advice on how to switch off and. Um, and compartmentalize one's day between work and uh, family life. I'd like to wish you and everybody in the fund and your portfolio a superb 2022. Thanks a lot, Gary. It was really great talking to you and uh, speak soon. 
This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.